Good morning. Would you please join me in the prayer for illumination? Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with hope and joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the book of John, chapter 17. Hear these words of Christ. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these, these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have um, just a quick, uh, I guess, point of personal privilege. Maybe that's it. Um, next week, there'll be a lot of uh, things going on. Um, I want you to know about uh, uh, a, a funeral that'll happen at 2 o'clock next Sunday for Erlene Chapman. Uh, Erlene was a charter member of this congregation. Um, I've often said uh, about many people that God broke the mold when they made them. I really think that's true about uh, Erlene Chapman, a very unique uh, woman uh, with lots of energy and passion, uh, cared deeply for this church, and, um, and we care deeply for her. Uh, and so she passed away last week. Uh, the funeral will be next Sunday, the 17th, uh, at two o'clock here in the sanctuary. I do hope that you'll uh, be able to find time to come out. Now, in addition to that, <clears throat> uh, next Sunday, right after the late service, in the sanctuary, we will have a church conference. Um, this will be for Rhonda Taylor. She has been in the process of discerning a call to ordained ministry. Uh, I think last month, uh, Staff Parish Relations Committee approved her as a, um, or recommended her, endorsed her. Uh, she goes, uh, I think, later next week to uh, be confirmed by the District Committee on Ministry. And so that'll be a short, wonderful meeting uh, after the late service. Uh, I know you'll want to be there as we celebrate this milestone in her ministry. Um, and Rhonda's not here today because she's gone on vacation. And if you know Rhonda Taylor very well, you know exactly where she is for vacation in the spring. Do you know this? Spring training for the Astros. That's right. So watch our Facebook feed for all the good dish on the Astros. All right. Thanks. 
So I'm not really sure how well the title, um, A Response to General Conference, works. Um, I promise this will be a sermon and not a political uh, review. Uh, I, I also would say that I've been at the bottom of the barrel with titles lately. If you went to Ash Wednesday, you know that to be true. My Ash Wednesday service, the sermon, the title was Change or Die. So I like to think that a, a response to General Conference might actually be an improvement from Ash Wednesday, but uh, I'm glad you're here. So when I think about General Conference, every year I think about one of my favorite jokes by a particular comedian, Emo Phillips. Now Emo is really popular in the 70s. Uh, he has like a bowl haircut. He wears very much a 70s uh, outfit with fringe on the front. And he uses this falsetto voice and he wanders around uh, the stage probably as much as I do when I preach. And he kind of has this childish wisdom bit that he talks, right? Kind of like the holy fool or something, or the wisdom of the fool, however you want to think about that. And his joke is wonderful. It's about three minutes long, and he starts by walking across the Golden Gate Bridge, and he finds somebody who's about to commit suicide, about to jump over. And he says, don't jump. And the guy says, uh, I got, um, he says, no, I want to. And, and Emo Phillips says, why? He says, no one loves me. And Emo Phillips says, really? God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the guy who wanted to jump says, well, yeah, I do believe in God. And Emo Phillips says, well, good. I'm glad that you believe in God. God loves you. Are you a Jew or a Christian? And the person about to jump off says, I'm a Christian. And Emo Phillips says, I am too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? And the person about to jump off the bridge says, I'm Protestant. And Emo Phillips says, I am too. And he says, uh, are you um, uh, uh, Baptist uh, or uh, Presbyterian? And the, uh, <laughs> yeah, hang on. Yeah, it's, I'm not going to do the whole three minutes, but I got to build it up, right? And, uh, and he says, no, I'm Baptist. And Emo Phillips says, I am too. And Emo Phillips proceeds to ask either or questions about whether you're fundamentalist, whether you're Great Lakes region or New England, whether you're uh, Council of 1865 or Council of 1902. And he gets down three minutes into the joke. They're all the way down. He says, well, that's great. You're Baptist fundamentalist. Um, uh, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1902. He says, are you reformed or not? And the guy says, reformed. And he says, I'm not. He pushes him off the bridge and says, die, heretic. <laughs> it's really the feeling that I get from General Conference. We spend a lot of time talking about how common and uh, in sync we are. And so we get down to the very last issue. And we push the other person off the bridge, screaming, die, heretic. I promise it gets better. When we look at our scripture passage for today, we find that this particular passage is in Jesus' farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is uh, the chapters between 14 and 17. Uh, John is uh, telling the story of how Jesus is preparing his disciples before he goes to the cross. That in this preparation, he talks about uh, uh, things like... Uh, um, don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated me first. He talks about the mission and the importance of staying one with the Father. He talks about the importance of discipleship and how they will be going against the grain in their work. And then finally, he prays for them. And our passage today is the last half of that prayer. In John 17, he prays for the disciples, and it is a powerful moment, both for the disciples and for Scripture, because we are hearing Jesus in the longest prayer that is recorded in the Bible. And what he prays for is for unity. 
He prays that, um, that as he knows the Father, that the Father might be known in him by his disciples, that the disciples might feel one with God through Jesus. He talks about how, um, how they will know uh, each other by the love that is in their hearts. And he asks God to put that love in the disciples' hearts. It's a powerful piece not only powerful in scripture, but also powerful in church history. This is the basis for ecumenical relations between denominations for the last 50 to 60 years. In fact, the Latin for uh, that they all may be one, ut unum sent, is the title of uh, Pope John Paul II's ecumenical encyclical uh, called ut unum sent. It is how we have thought about uh, being one in Christ, even though we are separated by differences. I think it's interesting for Jesus to pray for us to be one. That, that Jesus wants dearly for us to be one with the Father. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I think the Bible is full of opportunities that are simple and complex. It makes sense that Jesus would want us to be one. And that's easy to say, but harder to do. When we talk about what it means to be one, I think there are two different scripture passages that we can pull from to talk about being one. The first one would be from Genesis. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story, uh, the people on the earth had come together, they had learned one language and they spoke it together. And they had decided to do one project all together and that they were going to build a tower um, to assault heaven. Now, the tower was probably like a ziggurat from Babylonian architecture. It was a kind of a series of stairs up as high as they could go. Now, God looks down and sees what the people are doing, that they all have one uh, language, that they have one project, and that they are building a tower to assault heaven. And so he kind of confounds their problems and their plans, which is really strange for me, because when I think as a pastor, my goodness, if I could get you all on the same page, if we could all agree on one big project, we could speak one language, and we could get things done and get closer to heaven, that sounds like a win-win for everybody. But instead, God seems to think that their pursuit of one project using one language begins to look more like uniformity than unity. It, it gets to look more like uniformity, as if there is only one way to God. I am sad too. As if there is only one way to God, as if one can only speak one language. In fact, when uh, God scatters the people, he also confuses their language, which gives us the place name for the Tower of Babel because when they spoke to each other, they sounded as if they were babbling. So one way to think about oneness is to be uniform in what you do, so uniform that you might create divisiveness, divisiveness with your creator, even. The second scripture that I think works well to uh, imagine what it means to be one when Jesus prays that we might be one is the story out of Acts of Pentecost. 
If you remember, the disciples had gathered together um, in Jerusalem in a closed room. They were surrounded by most of uh, the world's pilgrims as they have come to Jerusalem for the festival. That as they can hear the commotion outside, they are wondering what to do next. And as they are praying and worshiping, the Holy Spirit comes as a rush of a mighty wind. And with tongues of flames upon each of their heads, they begin to speak in tongues. Now, some of you are thinking, wait now, preacher. Don't be talking about that charismatic stuff. But we don't have to go charismatic and miraculous on this. All we have to do is realize that Scripture says that as they spoke the tongues, they understood that it was the languages of the pilgrims who had gathered around them in Jerusalem for the festival. You see, Jesus had said um, uh, the Great Commission, go into all the world, uh, teaching everything that I have commanded, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age, right? So you might feel like, if you're a disciple, that's a really big mission. How will we accomplish it? Well, through the power of Pentecost, they were both equipped, united, and sent out to tell the gospel, not in a uniform way, but with great diversity, so that all the peoples of the world could hear it. Do you hear the differences between those two stories? The Tower of Babel is from the ground up. It is um, uh, uh, humans like you and I getting too big for our britches, thinking that we should set the agenda for God. Pentecost is something that comes from the top down. A rushing wind of the mighty Holy Spirit. A powerful empowerment of gifts and tongues that allow you to take the gospel throughout the world. I think that our answer for oneness comes less by Robert's rules of order and more about inspiration by the Holy Spirit. When we look at what happened uh, um, at General Conference... Essentially, there was a block of 53% to 60% of traditional votes that also included uh, uh, at least a third, uh, one-third of the room was from outside the United States. The traditionalist votes really valued authority of Scripture. They, They really valued this kind of biblical foundation that what it says is what it means. And then you have the left which had anywhere between kind of 37 to 43% votes, which really valued this kind of uh, caring for the outcast, bringing in the stranger, being willing to be community with those who are different from us, welcoming people even though they might not look like us, act like us, or talk like us. Now, I would say that there is something linked together about the two, I would say that to be willing uh, to bring in the outcast, one has to know the biblical truths of salvation by grace and the love of a caring God. And that without a desire to bring in the outcast and all that you have is this great idea about how Jesus has rescued you, but no idea about how you should participate in the rescue of others, you've only got half the equation. That without the knowledge of a loving, forgiving God, there's no reason to go find the outcast. And without the outcast, the love of a forgiving God may not relate and make sense to us. When I think about uh, the things that make United Methodism distinct, 
And you can ask any candidate for ordained ministry. In fact, I'd love for you to um, mob Rhonda Taylor the next time she's back and ask her, what is the most, what is the uh, distinctive quality of Methodism that you find most important? Because she'll get asked that at the District Committee on Ministry and at the Board of Ordained Ministry. In fact, I saw Paul Myler this morning at the early service taking notes as I was talking about this. He has another review coming up. The three things that are probably most distinctive about United Methodism is this view of connectionalism, that there are no lone rangers in United Methodism, that we're all bound together. We need each other. We're able to do uh, we, uh, Methodism through UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, is able to be as fast and as present in natural disasters as uh, the Red Cross is. We only do that because we do it together. This connectionalism, this accountability is a powerful thing. We are better together than we are separate. The second thing that I think is really powerful about Methodism is our view of grace. As opposed to viewing grace as your ability to walk the aisle while just as I am is being sung in the 10th or 11th verse and giving your life to Jesus only to take it back on Friday night when you go out partying and drinking is a very shallow view of grace. United Methodists believe in grace in three flavors, one grace in three ways. There's the grace that goes before, before we ever knew we needed God, God has been wooing us and loving us and drawing us into relationship before we ever knew it was possible. And then there's that justifying grace, just as if I had not sinned. It's the kind of grace that makes us white as snow, forgives us of our sins, washes us in the blood of Jesus. But don't ever forget there's a third kind of grace, because once you've been saved, there's an opportunity to be reformed and formed into the image of Jesus. John Wesley talked about this as sanctifying grace. It's the kind of grace that the Holy Spirit works into Christians' lives, that they might continually, over a lifetime of effort and love and grace, become to, uh, come to look more and more like the image of Jesus. Now, John Wesley was, had a little bit of humor. Um, people would ask him, is it possible to be perfected in this life by sanctifying grace? And John Wesley said, yes. He says, but if anybody tells you they are, they're probably not. <laughs> You'll get in the parking lot. <laughs> and so, with, and then the third distinctiveness about Methodism is the power of Christian conferencing. Now, that word Christian is important uh, because we often go to conferences and they don't often feel Christian at all. John Wesley began Christian conferencing because he would meet with his pastors regularly. And the first question of any Christian conference was from John Wesley to his pastors. And it was this question, how is it with your soul? Now, loving Wesleyanism and history, I once asked in a previous church, my chair of SPR who'd been diagnosed with cancer and it was terminal, I asked her how it was with her soul. She began to get very upset she says, are you asking me whether I've accepted Jesus? You do know I'm your SPR chair. And I laughed and said, no, I'm sorry. I'm just asking, how is it with your soul today? Knowing what you know about yourself and knowing what you know about God, how best can I pastor you today? Christian conferencing begins with this idea that we love each other, that we care about each other. It goes countercultural to the culture of contempt, where we assume that our side is good and their side is bad, that our side wants to make life and their side is just evil. 
that we can uh, negotiate and compromise with people from our side, but never with the other side. Sometimes in a football game, you hear a quarterback call an audible, right? Quarterback's on the field, he looks at what's in front of him, and he decides he needs something totally different than what was in the playbook. And so he calls an audible. I'm gonna call a liturgical audible today. I believe that if, uh, if you go through general, uh, and I should say that general conference affirmed uh, the stan social stances that we've had over the last eight to 12 years. We continue to, uh, um, we continue to hold three stances. One stance is that uh, Christian, er, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. The second stance is that all people, regardless of sexual orientation, are of sacred worth and are loved by God. And then the third stance is at this time, the United Methodist Church does not perform same-sex weddings, nor do they ordain self-avowed practicing uh, homosexual and lesbians. Those three stances have not changed. And so if you've been comfortable with them in the past, they are what we are having in the future. Uh, uh, additionally, there are now some accountability measures and some restrictions to help uh, focus some of the work of the church. And so there are penalties if you don't abide by that, those church laws. But I think what's most important about what I saw in General Conference was they had four days, and one day they took completely for worship and prayer. And it was beautiful. If you watched it on the live stream, which is still archived on YouTube, it was powerful to see left and right worshiping God together. But then it seemed like it was a completely different group of people on the next day when they began the work of Robert's Rules of Order. And it didn't seem as if they were asking the question, how is it with your soul? But much, much more a question of how politically we can annihilate the other side. And so if you were hoping for me to say, yay, the outcome of General Conference was right, or boo, the outcome of General Conference was wrong, this will be a very unsatisfying sermon. But I want you to know what I wish would be true about General Conference and what I wish would be true about our lives and the culture around us is that we would begin asking and wondering, how is it with our soul and others? How can we be one? Jesus prayed that we would be one. We don't have to agree on everything, but can we at least treat each other as if we were humans? And so I've always believed that if you can't actually do the thing, then you should do something similar to the thing. So if I can't find a way to be one, I should look at what worship, scripture, and spiritual formation tells me. And I was trained to know that when we come to the table, we are all equal, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, and that together, when we eat at the table, we find ourselves as a faith family. And so my audible today is to celebrate communion, to realize that we are invited to Christ's table have you ever been in a busy airport and there's no place to sit in the food court and you end up sharing a table with somebody that you don't know? And before you get done, you realize there's something in common between you and them? Have you ever found yourself uh, eating um, with folk, uh, inviting folk over, being invited over, and realizing that sitting at the table makes you part of the family for that brief moment in time? I think that's true when we gather for communion, that we are all welcome that we all find unity in Christ. That true, we've not found uniformity, but we have found unity and what we need to carry out the Great Commission. And so I'd like to invite you, 
um, we don't have the common, uh, we don't have the individual cups. Um, and so uh, I want to remind you if um, for immune issues or illness issues, you do not want to dip the bread into the common cup. There's great theological writing about if you take one part of communion, you've taken both parts. And so, um, you know, enjoy the bread and don't worry. Uh, after the service, I can show you where it's written. Um, I think this is a great opportunity for us to prayerful, be prayerful about the church and to allow the grace of God to continue to conform us and reform us into the image of Christ by participating together in communion. I want to invite Josh to come up and begin with our confession and pardon. <clears throat> 